The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will, to comfort us in our afflictions, to defend us from all error, and to lead us into all truth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. All right. Um, We're continuing in the Catechism, so we are actually on question 128 today. We've been talking about the sacraments, and uh, we finally reached marriage. Um, And uh, marriage comes up at two points in the Catechism. The first point is here, and then later it comes in the Ten Commandments section when we we talk about adultery. Uh, And so it's dealt with twice. They're different paragraphs. I want to give a couple housekeeping items before we jump in all the way. Um, and the big thing that I want to put out there is two th- well, two things. Um, one is we'll resume catechesis on January 12th, um, which should be right around uh, time some of you move back in. Uh, and then, but on that day, I'll actually have a really, uh, we, will, we will go back to this catechism. Uh, this either it comes in this black leather, case, leather cover or the gray, uh, you know, kind of cheapy. Uh, print-on-demand kind of thing. And, uh, but on probably the last Sunday of January, I will have 40 copies of a hardcover, fresh off the presses from Crossway, uh, brand new edition of the Catechism. And what we'll do is we'll pick up generally where we left off with this Catechism, but with the new edition. Um, I thought hardly about just sort of staying right in this one, but the new Catechism is so infinitely better in terms of the Scripture references, in terms of how it's worded, that um, we're just going to switch to it. So um, that is, you may not know this, but we've been operating off a draft catechism for six years. Uh, and so it's just been, it's been sort of chaotic. Go ahead. Came from. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Well, let me tell you the story. It was a good thing to do um, because I was right there in the middle of it during this whole thing. Um, When the ACNA was founded, I was put on the uh, ACNA Committee for Catechesis or the Catechesis Task Force was what it was originally called. And um, I uh, originally served as co-chair of that committee. And um, we were set to three tasks. One was to reestablish the ancient catechumenate within the ACNA as a, as a basis for making disciples, and um, especially since, you know, on any given year in the ACNA, we, we baptize approximately like 1,000 to 1,500 adults, give or take. Um, so it's kind of an amazing thing. And the question is, well, how, what do we do? Right? What do we do with them? Uh, what do we also do with people that are looking to be confirmed, that people are looking to join our churches? Um, and so the, the reestablishment of the catechumenate was part of that, and we developed a document called um, Toward... Um, toward the renewal of the ancient catechumenate, and uh, that you can find on the ACNA website. Uh, and so we presented this to the bishops, and uh, we also presented why you need to start doing these things and taking this kind of process seriously. And I'll never forget it because they were rather upset with us. <laughs> and they were upset with me because I basically called them out for not really providing clear doctrinal uh, resources for the province. I mean, I said, like, listen, we don't, no one knows what it is they should be teaching. Everybody teaches different things. Um, and the problem is, the lowest common denominator tends to prevail when that's the case. Um, and so, lots, we had lots of problems, uh, huge problems. Um, uh, and of course, every church has problems like that. I mean, this is, this is not new to anybody. And so, remember this, we were at a retreat center in, in Sumas, Washington, just almost, you could spit and hit Canada. Um, and, uh, they called us. They, we were going to go up to Vancouver and have dinner with friends, and uh, they called us into this meeting. And my, the other co-chair was horribly sick, and he had a Charlie horse in his leg. So he was on, he was on uh, painkillers and uh, muscle relaxers, and he was basically worthless. <laughs> and so, so the bishops said, you know, um, what we really want is a catechism. Can you, can you write us a catechism? And, and I was sitting there, and I said, as much as I would love to say yes, I don't, I don't think we're equipped for that. Um, you know, we're not theologians. We're not, like, we're not, we're not able to do that. Uh, that's a much bigger task. That's a task where you need to get the right people together. And at one point, one of the bishops said, listen, what we're saying is we trust you to do it and not someone else. So 
give us a catechism. What would it look like? And I, and I just sort of sketched it out. I said, well, it'd be about a three, 340 to 360 question, question and answer catechism. It would cover three areas, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments, and, you know, you'd have everything in between. And, and uh, I think it'd be great. And they were like, good, let's do it. <laughs> so, so we started gathering people almost immediately. We had a first meeting up in Vancouver with uh, Jim Packer as our, uh, as our um, executive editor and uh, Joel Scandrett, who's a wonderful guy up in Pittsburgh, uh, as our managing editor, and uh, so that led to this. Uh, four years later, a um, lot of lot of hard work and a lot of a lot of effort went into it. And then we did later revisions, and now we've handed it over to a publisher, and they're and they're they're running with it. Um, w this catechism has actually been translated into 14 languages already um, that we know of, and uh, it's being used throughout the communion. Um, it's a massive. Uh, it was a massive undertaking, um, but it's been it's being used almost all, well, all over the world today. Um, in fact, several years ago, there was a, or I think it was four years ago now, there was a church bombing in Pakistan, and uh, they were in the middle of a catechesis session in an Urdu translation of this catechism. And I think 114 people died in that church. So, I mean, it was just an, it's an amazing kind of weight, and it's been a burden, but, but it's been awesome, because here's, here's, Here's why we did it, okay? We had always wanted to do something like that, but it was kind of took the bishops pushing us, pushing us off the ledge to do it. Here's the problem. If, and I've, I say a lot about this, but if you don't have a rule for the spiritual life, for the life of, for a, for a, for a life of engagement in the doctrines of the faith, right? You're going to wonder which way's up. Like, you're going to really wonder, how, what should I really be learning? What should anybody be learning at this point? So you have to lay that out. You have to say, this is what needs to be taught, right? And I think it's, a lot of people just say, hey, why can't we just teach Scripture? And, and I just say, sounds like a great plan. Where do you start? And nobody knows, right? But what we find is that the church has had this practice of catechesis for a long, long time, and it is how we teach Scripture. It's how we teach the doctrines of the faith. And here's another thing that I love about this. Um, one of the great things about doing catechesis is it jumpstarts, seriously jumpstarts your reading of Scripture um, because you can start to see the whole flow. You can start to see, like, this is what it leads to. Um, and so, yeah, there you go. That's it. And so we'll have, uh, we'll have a uh, the new edition will come out on January 23rd. You can buy it through Amazon, or you can buy it through us. It's $20, um, and uh, if you can't, if you absolutely come to me and say, I can't pay that, I'll just hand you a copy, okay? If, if you say, 20 bucks is easy, then maybe pay 40, you know? Uh, but because it's going to cost you at least 32 on Amazon, so I'm just going to pull that out. We got a Crossway account, we can just do it, um, and it's very, very affordable. Okay, go ahead, yep. You can get the new, you can actually, we have several copies down in the office, and it's the same deal. You can hand me a 20, and I will get it for you out of the, out of the, uh, out of the office. Um, the other way that you can do it is order them online, but, but it's, it's fraught with difficulty. The shipping's expensive, and um, so they haven't quite ironed that one out yet. Um, you can, I believe you can order the floppy edition as well, um, which is, you know, really nice. Um, so, uh, we're getting to this question on marriage, and I want to kind of preload it by saying something which, you know, will probably surprise none of you, but that is that um, this is really the major cultural uh, question that we're asking today in the church. I mean, and, and I'll say why. I mean, I've often heard people kind of lament, like, well, why is it that we're getting so hung up on marriage? Can't we get more hung up about things like the divinity of Christ or like, you know, other more important things? And, and I say, well, I mean, sure, we could. Here's the issue with marriage as a, as a question, is that it's almost impossible, almost impossible to hedge your bets on this question doctrinally. Um, and the reason is you're, you really are either for traditional teachings on marriage, or you're against them. You, you can't really ride the fence very long. Um, and so in many ways, this, this issue has become a litmus test for Christian orthodoxy in this day. I don't like that. I wish it was something else, right? I can wish all day long that I wish it was something else, but it's not. It just isn't. Um, this is the major presenting issue, and I will say this is too. Um, Ella's going to laugh because we've been using this analogy for a long time. It's a bowl of fish hooks. 
you know, you can't reach into this bowl without pulling up a lot of baggage, right? It's like, but what about this? And what about this? And what about so-and-so? And what about so-and-so? And, and it just attaches onto a bunch of other things. And I will tell you that one of the things with marriage that people have underestimated is just how much this particular question relates to many other questions. I think one of the things you start to realize as you start to read Christian theology regarding marriage is this. Christian doctrine of marriage is connected to basically every other Christian doctrine. The person of Christ, the, the identity of the church, so it's connected to Christology, ecclesiology, uh, sacramental theology, it's tied to our doctrine of the Trinity, it's tied to all manner of things. Even our doctrine of salvation is tied to our teaching on marriage. Um, and many people are saying, well, can't we just kind of alter the teaching on marriage and have the rest survive? And I think you know me well enough to know that my answer to that is absolutely not. That's not how it works. Um, and so some people have said, well, is, is orthodox teaching on Christian marriage essential to what Christian orthodoxy is? And again, I would say, it's either tied to these other doctrines explicitly or it's not. And what does Scripture teach us about that? What is, what is the mystery of marriage related to? Christ and the church. And Christ and the church is at the center of what we believe about salvation. It's at the center of what we believe about life in general. Um, and so I'm going to just hold very strongly and just say, no. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, the church's teaching on marriage is absolutely central to Christian orthodoxy. Um, and we'll say more why. Okay. So, um, in this section, we deal particularly with, uh, with the more creedal aspects of Christian marriage, but in later sections, we're going to deal with more of the moral questions, but they all kind of bleed together, so we'll, we'll, give it, we'll go for it. What is marriage? This is question 128. What is marriage? Marriage is the lifelong covenant between a man and a woman, binding both to self-giving love and exclusive fidelity. In the rite of Christian marriage, the couple exchange vows to uphold this covenant. They do this before God and in the presence of witnesses who pray that God will bless their life together. Okay, what is marriage? The first, the first, the first defining phrase here is it's a lifelong covenant. Okay, so first part, lifelong. What does it mean? What does lifelong mean? Till death do us part. Okay, so until one or both die, okay, and you... I mean, as you, as you get it further on in marriage, you just hope to God that one of you, like, <laughs> that only one of you will die at <laughs> one time, like, that, you know, you don't, you don't wind up in a car wreck together. Uh, but, but lifelong, meaning that as long as both are still alive, the marriage covenant is in place. Well, what's a covenant? I've used this analogy in the past in this class, but the best definition I've ever heard for a covenant is an exchange of persons. Okay. In marriage... The husband gives himself, and not only himself, but everything he has and everything he is, to the woman. And the woman gives herself and everything she has and everything she is to him. Um, in, uh, in, uh, in the old prayer book language, the, it's, you're going to laugh at this one, the, you used to finish the vows by saying, and hitherto I plight thee my troth, which is very old-fashioned language for, hitherto I give you everything I've got. Okay. Um, I give you my trust, um, and that's trust in really kind of a more financial sense. You know what a trust is, right? Um, like it's, it's a binding agreement between parties. Okay. Um, you may not be aware of this, but, but you probably, maybe not by law, but by obligation, if you marry someone who has debt, what happens to the debt? It becomes yours. If you marry someone with great wealth, what happens to that great wealth? It becomes yours. Um, you know, I had a, uh, I, I had very little <laughs> when we got married, but everything that I had became hers, and everything she had became mine. Um, that's how marriage works. Um, that's also the reason that I won't officiate at marriages where there's a prenuptial agreement. I actually have to ask couples, are you going to have a prenuptial agreement? No. Okay, good. We can do this. <laughs> because, the, because you never know, right? Um, in fact, I always ask couples to lay out their assets and debts on paper in front of each other before we move forward um, because it's that essential. Okay? Um, this lifelong covenant, and it's not only about the financial instruments, but it's about something bigger, which is what? We actually give our bodies one to the other. Okay? So it's not just about like, oh, we're just such great friends and we just thought we'd make an official. No, like 
I'm literally giving you my body, which becomes yours, and you're going to give me yours, which becomes mine. Now, does that mean I can do with it what I want? No. <laughs> it's, it's still bound by, um, by, uh, by, by, uh, it's bound by the covenant itself um, to that kind of faithfulness. Okay, we're going get, to get to that. Between a man and a woman, here's a controversial part, but um, let me just uh, put it the way that a good friend of mine puts it. Marriage is about plumbing in a very real sense when it comes to, to the physical part, right? I mean, it's about fitting parts. Um, and listen, as our culture has, has basically said something like this, we want to walk away from physicality and sort of aspire to these ideals of what it means to be to live apart from a body. We no longer live in bod bodily realities, which is very strange for, for a society that is ostensibly materialistic, right? I mean, it's very strange, and it doesn't make sense at the end of the day. Um, if, if you want to find a hole in, in where um, secularism is going, it's, it's essentially this. Am I bound by my body or not? Is, is, is my personhood bound up in my body or not? And you'll start to get, I mean, things get very muddled at that point. Um, the Christian assumption about the human person is that we are, we are a totality of body and soul and spirit, and whatever a human being is, it has all of those elements. Okay? So, we, we can't act in abstraction from the body. We, we are bodies. Um, and uh, to put it bluntly, um, we know that, uh, that, and still, the thing we haven't been able to get around with technology is this, how to make babies without a man and a woman. We haven't figured it out yet. Um, so this is, uh, this, is, this is at the heart of, of, uh, of Christian marriage. Binding both. I love this word, binding. Um, binding is certainly contractual language, but it's even more than that. It's religious language. The word religio in Latin actually means binding. And the parties are bound together through a sacred vow. And in fact, at a certain point in the, in the marriage rite, the old, and I'm very old-fashioned, so we do this here, the priest takes his stole and he wraps it around the hands of the couple. Okay? That's, by the way, called tying the knot. <laughs> um, that's what it is. It's, it's you bind them with this stole. And it's at this point that I place my hands on, so their hands are joined together, wrapped in a stole, this vestment, and then I clasp their hands like this. And I say, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man rend asunder. Um, and then everybody cheers and claps and they kiss, and, you know, which isn't actually in the liturgy. Uh, but <laughs> but, but that's, that's, that's what seals the deal, in a sense, um, is this, this blessing of their binding themselves together in this lifelong covenant. Well, what's the, what's the covenant? What does it include? Well, here we say. It includes self-giving love, okay, which is magnificent, right? I mean, how good are you at self-giving love? If you say, I'm awesome at it, I'm going to say, BS, <laughs> try again. <laughs> you're not good at it, right? In fact, one of the reasons you get married is because you know you're not good at it. And you need a, uh, uh, an apprenticeship in self-giving love. Um, indeed, one of, the, one of the most wonderful spiritual writers on marriage and the body and sexuality in the last century was John Paul II, and he says that um, chastity itself, which is not something which is only for the single, it's for everyone, it's for every Christian, um, is an apprenticeship in self-mastery, um, which allows us to be a people of love. So here's the thing. I can't really love another person if my self-interest is bound up in what that love means. Do you agree? If all I want is to gratify my own desires, how good of a lover am I going to be? Not very, put it that way, not very, actually horrible. Um, so, it's, it's, we bind ourselves in marriage to self-giving love, um, meaning that the object of that love is forever fixed, okay? So, this is a difference between, are, are, all, Christians, are all Christians committed to, should they be committed to self-giving love, whether married or unmarried? Yes. In marriage, you're bound to self-giving love towards this particular person this man or this woman. Self-giving love and exclusive fidelity. Um, what's essentially happening here is you have unhindered, um, total, uh, exclusive rights, <laughs> um, 
which sounds really odd in this, in this day and age where we really love our freedom, right? But here's the thing about marriage. In marriage, you get freedom by this exclusive arrangement of fidelity. How is that the case? Think about it for a moment. Those of you who are married are going to be a little bit further ahead on this. Listen, getting married is kind of a relief in a lot of ways. It really is. You leave behind this life of trying to find the one, of wondering, have I really found the one? Am I really getting this part of my life right? I have all these desires, and what do I do with them, right? And then on the day you're married, now, now granted, it does not switch like, a, like an electrical switch, right? If you think it does, you're, you're, you don't get it, right? But there's freedom in knowing that I no longer have to go out and engage in this kind of, uh, this kind of seeking. Um, you are finding freedom by uh, stability. And in fact, this is incredible. I studied the, uh, the Benedictine rule with, uh, with some Brazos fellows a couple weeks ago. And what's at the center of the Benedictine rule? Stability. You vow yourself to this monastery, to these monks, to this place for the rest of your life. You're never going to move. You're never going to do anything else because you've just settled in your life that this is where I am. And from that stability, what do you get? You get freedom. Now, this is at total odds with how our society views freedom and responsibility and all those kinds of things. Because in our, in our, in our world today, most people sort of say, well, you know, exclusive fidelity, well, that doesn't sound very free. Uh, but they can't see what's at the heart of it. So I want to say that to you. This, by the way, is, and I'll be explicit about it, is sexual fidelity, but it's also fidelity of heart, fidelity of mind, um, fidelity of the truth, um, all those things. In the rite of Christian marriage, the couple exchange vows. Okay, this is really important. If you ever go to a wedding, and I've been to a few weddings that are like this, and there are no vows exchanged, it didn't happen. Okay, I'm just going to say it really strongly. It didn't happen. Um, Why? Because vows are actually the form of the sacrament here. And without form, you can't have a sacrament. The form is the vows. Man and woman making vows to each other. That's the form of marriage. If, if there are no vows, it didn't happen. And in fact, one of the things that I, uh, that I say to a bride and groom is, you have to say it loud enough so that your chosen witnesses, you know, maid of honor, best man, can hear it. Because they're going to sign the register saying, I heard it, it happened. And then they're going to put their address and phone number in the register so that when the couple calls and says, yeah, you know, Father, we're thinking about getting divorced, I can say, hang on just a second, I'm going to put so-and-so on the line and I'm going to call them. And they're going to remind you what you did so many years ago. Do you see the point? Because those vows are there. And to have witnesses means I heard them. Um, so, you know, you can't just sort of say, you can't sort of stand there and say, I love you so much and you're my everything and my heart flutters pitter-patter when I see you and la, 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 la. And then he says something similar. And, and it's just like, that's not a vow, you're describing your relationship poorly. Um, <laughs> but, but you see the problem, and that's, and that's why, and this is really important, um, you know, I've had couples say, well, can we, can we write our own vows? That doesn't happen at Christ Church, but I've had couples say, can we write our own vows? And the answer is absolutely not, because you couldn't possibly write vows like this. Do you know why? Because the inclination of your desires is broken, the inclination of my desires are broken. I have to reread the vows to know what I'm in for because they completely surpass all my expectations. I mean, we would never say, till death do us part, if we had a choice. And so this is why the church provides us with the, this language of vows. Um, we, 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 we make these vows before God and before our families, um, and, and, they, and they, are, they are permanent. We take these vows to uphold this covenant. Um, one of the things that's great about a covenant is that uh, covenants are, you kind of go into the covenant knowing that it's not going to be perfect, right? You know there's going to be some broken stuff. You know it's, you know it's not going to be exactly what you wanted. Just like when you go into business and you enter in a contract, you know that it's not going to work out perfectly, 
but you know that at least you have something to fall back on to say, whoa, hold up. You said, I remember it. I was standing there. I was in a white dress, and you said this. And you can call back to it. It's very important. Okay. They do this before God. Okay. That's, here's another thing. It's not that God isn't everywhere. I mean, just, let's be clear about that. But that's why, according to Radosan rules, I can't celebrate a marriage outside the church without some sort of dispensation from that rule by the bishop. Um, it happens in sacred space. Why? Because even though that beach in Cancun is lovely and beautiful and it's everything you ever hoped for, um, it, it, it doesn't reach the severity of a church space, right? A sacred space that's set apart for these, these covenant acts, okay? Um, so, there's that. Um, you do it before God and in the presence of witnesses. Okay? This is an important part as well. These are not just your family and friends that are gathered around uh, to celebrate this happy day with you. Uh, they are witnesses, meaning that they uh, are legal in a sense, although not really anymore. They are, uh, at least in terms of church law, legal witnesses to the facts of the vows, okay? Um, so that no one can walk down the road and say, yeah, but it didn't really happen, okay? Um, listen, I will say this to you as well. If you are uh, engaged, one of the things that I'll say to you if you come into my office is say, so how do you guys feel about elopement? They'll look at me weirdly like, what are you talking about? Well, I mean, like, we could get this done in 30 days. I mean, it would be easy. And they're like, why? Uh, well, I mean, you'd get married. You wouldn't have to put on this big, like, wedding. You know, we could have a few witnesses. Your family could be around. We could do it for nothing. and It would be really easy. And the reason I always say that is, like, because it sort of tests the waters of, are you in it for the big day or are you in it for marriage? Um, that's a big question. And sometimes that planning has gotten way out of hand by the time you're in my office. Um, I want to know that it's I want to know that it's serious, and I want to know that well, you know, that would be an interesting option, <laughs> something like that. Um, but but you still, and the reason I tell this is, as as much as you might want to elope, you still have to have witnesses. Okay, so as much as you might want to have the wedding in Braveheart, you can't because it's not valid. Okay, um, there we go. Um, and the witnesses pray. Go ahead. Yes. Um, it's an interesting uh, deal because uh, Christians in the early centuries did not, um, did not validate marriage. Um, they didn't convalidate it with the state. They didn't do anything like that. Um, marriages were contracted in another sense, usually according to the customs of whatever culture you found yourself in. And <clears throat> if you want to know more, we have a late Roman historian in the room who can probably be happy to tell you what that's like. Uh, but, but basically, over time, and as especially after the fall of the Roman Empire, the church takes a much more active role in administering marriage by law. Um, and, and that's where the vows originate. Um, now, vows are given contractually before, right? And one of the things that you have to sort of suffer through is this understanding that we do as Christians acknowledge natural marriage, right? The kind of marriage which is inherent in creation. I mean, people get married, right? Um, but we also have, we believe that marriage is a sacrament, um, and when Christians enter into marriage, there's, there's almost like another facet that's added to it, um, which we can get to right now. Does that help, this question about how did, where did the vows originate? Um, what is signified in marriage? The covenantal union of man and woman in marriage signifies the communion between Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, and the church, his holy bride. Not all are called to marriage, but all Christians are wedded to Christ and blessed by the grace God gives in marriage. I love this answer, so let's, let's break it down. The covenantal union between man and woman in marriage signifies the communion between Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, and, his, and the church, his holy bride. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 that, um, that uh, well, let's, let's, let's break it out. I want to read it because my memory of Ephesians is slipping a little bit. By the way, if you want to win points with me and you're about to get married at Christ Church, ask to read Ephesians chapter 5, and I, you'll, you'll be my friend forever. <laughs> I love it when couples select Ephesians 5, despite all of its shocking verbiage. Um, Ephesians 5.31, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his flesh, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is a profound one, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Um, Paul believes that in, in marriage is signified the proper relationship between Christ and his church. Um, you may notice that in preaching, I will refer to the church as she or her in terms of pronouns. That's not by accident because the church is actually a female entity. Um, well, here's why. The church is meant uh, to be so full of Christ and his seed, that, which is the word, that we multiply. Capiche? Okay. It's good stuff. The, the, the teaching is essentially that we are to become so one with Christ that when, uh, and it is just the truth of what we take on at baptism, but that when, when, I'll just put it this way, when someone in the world sees Michael, what do they see? Not just a member of the body of Christ, but they see a Christ. That's, that's got to be the basis of Christian witness, is that um, we, we work for each other. Now, I should say as well, in, in most states to this day, it's the case that when that a husband can actually contract business on behalf of his wife and likewise. Okay, so, you know, my wife agrees that, you know, $180 to clean our laundry vents, right? Which is actually what it costs these days, I'm surprised. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, I, I can't just come in and say, whoa, I didn't authorize that. No, she, she did it on my behalf. We do this all the time. Um, still legally, that's binding. I can't back out just because I didn't want it. Like, we, we trust each other to that point, that that's how it can happen. Um, the same is true of the church. The church conducts business and does her work um, of, of, does her apostolic work on behalf of Christ with full authority to do so. Does that make sense? And this is something that people often miss because they say, well, you know, the church isn't really Jesus. So you can't, like, you know, forgive sins. You can't hold up bread and wine and say, this is my body. You can't, you can't like, marry people. Like, you can't, you can't do any of those things. And yet, Catholic Christians will always say in the background, they'll always say, like, uh, yes, but there's really no, dis- there's no distinction between Christ and his church. They fall away. Um, she's not one of my favorite saints because anybody that, you know, fights against the English can't possibly be a saint. Um, but Joan of Arc at her trial uh, was, was asked about what the church is because this is a big, it's a big sticky point in her trial. It's great reading. If you ever want to read, you know, the, the trial proceedings of Joan of Arc are magnificent, magnificent reading, magnificent theological reading, actually. And, sh- and she says, you know, if you're asking me what the difference is between Christ and his church, I don't know. That's a great answer, actually, because it means that she really understands this. Um, and I would say the same thing. If you're asking me the difference between Mr. and Mrs., so-and-so, I will say, I don't know. Now, are they different physically? Yes. But they've become one flesh um, in, in, in truth. Okay, and I should say as well, what's a sacrament? An outward and visible sign of inward spiritual grace. And what does that mean? That man and woman show forth something that you cannot see. Um, this, this, this interior grace which is given. Um, not all are called to marriage. Very important, okay? Um, this is why uh, the, the, um, the Reformers, particularly the English Reformers, basically say this. They say that baptism and the Eucharist are gener- gener- generally necessary for salvation, but you can't hold that any other sacrament is necessary for salvation. Okay? So you can't just say, well, you either have to be in holy orders or married. That's it. Like, no. N- these, are, these are extras, right? Um, not all are called to them. So not all are called to marriage, but all Christians are wedded to Christ and blessed by the grace God gives in marriage. So it's to this point where one of my favorite church fathers, Gregor of Nyssa, basically says, the character of every Christian before God is that of a female being. It's the goods, right? That's good stuff. Why? Why is that good? Why is that good news? It, it, it means that everything that Christ has is ours. We didn't pay for it. We didn't go get it. 
It was a gift given to us in a covenantal union. That's good. That's real good, right? And, you know, like, this often happens in marriage. It's like, early on in marriage, it's like, one, one will call the other and say, hey, uh, I got to get new tires for my car. Can I do that? And, 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 and let's say that it was, you know, someone with no money coming into a relationship where there was a good amount, right? Can I do that? And, and the other person says, are you kidding? Everything I have is yours. We just made vows, right? Of course. You don't have to ask permission. You see? And this directly relates, and it's not just financial, it's, it's everything. This directly relates to Christ. And this is why Paul talks about the riches that have been given, us, given to us in Christ. I think it's actually in Ephesians. Um, okay. All Christians are wedded to Christ and blessed by the grace God gives in marriage. This is something we absolutely have to recover. It is so essential. I want to I preach for 20 minutes on it, but I won't. Um, marriage is not, 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 not. Did I say that enough times to get it to work? Not a private affair. What Christian married people do in their bedroom actually does matter to the whole church. Does that mean they shouldn't have privacy? No. It just means that their relationship actually matters for the church, and it matters for society. The health of, the health of marriage within a society determines the health of that society. This should be glaringly obvious. Um, we have in this country today an illegitimacy rate, which I know is, you can't use that word anymore, but we have an illegitimacy rate that is spiking, and it's creating massive disasters in our culture. Um, it's no coincidence that the rate of uh, depression, the rate of anxiety, the rate of suicide, the rate of all kinds of mental illnesses, the rate of, uh, of, of poverty is going, up, is going up in certain sectors of society. Here's the thing. We're getting wealthier as a whole, but certain portions of society are losing out because the sexual revolution has absolutely demolished them. Okay, so you have to see that. The collapse of marriage has been an absolute problem in our society, and we can't just sort of say, oh, but we're all generally doing better. Well, some people are losing out. Okay? Um, and the reason is, is actually rather simple. Some racial sectors within our society are losing out because of this, uh, this exact problem. What should we say about this? We should say that all Christians, indeed all of society, benefits from marriage. Let me tell you how. One of the ways that the church revolutionized marriage in the Roman world was by adding to uh, the Roman institution of marriage this. So by the way, Roman men... They can divorce their wife at will, marry another one. They can adopt children at will. Get, you know, I don't like my kids. I'm going to get new kids. Okay, good. You got new kids. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, Christian men couldn't do that. They had to keep their kids and adopt more, and they had to keep their wife and be happy with her. And if he wasn't happy, that was a problem with him, not her. Okay? You see what's going on? What happened, and there's a guy over at Baylor named Rodney Stark who's written about this, says this, this absolutely solidifies the place of women in church and in society. It makes the church an incredibly attractive place to be. It uh, allows women to serve as mothers and to serve as, as uh, caretakers within the society and culture at a much more uh, uh, settled place. I mean, can you imagine that? You don't have to worry about getting kicked to the curb. Um, because the pasta's not done properly, right? There was no pasta in the ancient world, but anyway, that's <laughs> all just to say, um, you, you've, you've got to grasp this, right? The same is true uh, in terms of how the family was structured. You know, bubonic plague comes to Rome, and guess who doesn't run for the hills? Christians. We stay. We take care of the sick. Why? Because we're bound to each other. Just because my wife has bubonic plague doesn't mean I'm leaving. I'm going to stay. Um, this is a massive step forward. It's just absolutely massive. Um, and in fact, well, I'll just say this. The entire West is built on this foundation, and we just decided, oh, you know, it's no longer necessary for our flourishing. We're going to let it go. Um, this is a disaster, okay? Um, one more thing. Um, the first, and this, this, we get into this later. Um, we get into this later in the Catechism and the, in the, on, on the Commandments. But the first purpose of marriage, um, given in the prayer book, and actually, let's do that. We've got time. Let's open to the marriage rite. Again, if you want to know what Anglicans believe, what do you open up first? 
Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. But if you really want to get down to the heart of matters, right, and find out clearly, the catechism's helpful, okay? I'll say that. I think it's a good thing. This red book, right? Um, what I love, Eddie Azar calls it the little red cookbook. Um, that's where you find it, okay? Um, and we look to marriage rights, and I will give you the... the uh, has, anybody, has anybody found that already so I don't have to look for the... 201. Excellent. Okay. So here you have it. Um, as it turns out, every time I've done a marriage out of this book, and I've done it like four times now, somebody says, well, that was sobering. <laughs> that wasn't, and they're kind of like disappointed that it wasn't more happy and positive. And I say, well, what did you expect? Like, it's marriage. Like, <laughs> um, and so let's just get at it. Dearly beloved, we have gathered together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Almighty God established the bond and covenant of marriage and creation as a sign of the mystical union between Christ and his church. Um, go on a little bit more to the bottom paragraph. We've already covered that. The union of husband and wife and heart, body, and mind was ordained by God for the procreation of children. There's your first good of marriage. And for their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. Okay, so that's, that's the first good of marriage is procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. For mutual joy, okay, that's, and the help and comfort given to one another in prosperity and adversity. So would you agree with this, that, that married couples should find joy in one another and in their relationship? Okay, good. It's not signing on to this miserable life, you know, and like the old bag, you know, and all this. No, that's not Christian marriage, okay? Christian marriage is supposed to be a joy. To maintain purity is the last of the three goods of marriage, and it simply means this, that it's a guard against sin. Um, so I wanted to lay those out before we, before we proceed. What our culture has effectively done is we've severed the first good of marriage and the third good of marriage from the middle one and said, the middle one is the reason people should get married. That's the good of marriage in our society and culture. It's simply for joy, and we're going to leave off procreation on the one hand and a guard against sin on the other. You see what's going on? And we're just going to sort of elevate this, this lovely friendship that two people have as what marriage is. First off, that doesn't hold up scripturally. It doesn't hold up naturally. Um, and it really doesn't hold up practically either. Okay. What about this whole... Go ahead. Yeah. Excellent. I'm glad you asked that question because I was just about to answer it anyway. <laughs> so what about, what about couples that can't have children? Okay. First off, there's a reason that we say something along the lines of that isn't, and please don't take this the wrong way, that's not normal, right? There's a reason that when couples are infertile, what do they do? They go to a doctor, right? Okay, because there's something which is broken down in the natural order that shouldn't be but is. So that's the first thing. I just want to say that. And it's a miserable place to be. It really is. I'm nothing but sympathy for that. Um, so that's the first thing. We say, that's not how it should be. Um, that is not what God intended. Okay, we can say all that. The other thing that we can say, though, is a little more fun, <laughs> which is this. I've, a couple times in my life, officiated at weddings where the couple is at least 60 or older, and there are prayers in the prayers for the procreation of children, if it be God's will. And this particular uh, older bride said, Father, this was several years ago, lovely couple, said, Father, you know that certain things have ceased to be possible for me, right? Are we still going to pray that prayer? And I said, absolutely. And she said, why? And I said, I said, Agnes, whether you have natural children with Steve or not, your marriage is meant to be an instrument of procreation in our society and culture. You have no idea the spiritual fruit that your marriage can bring forth. See? Okay. We got lots of people in this room that, that, that suffer from this problem of like, okay, well, the kids are going to be grown, and they'll all be up and gone, and then what do we do? And some of you in this room are thinking like, that's when it gets really fun, right? Because there's lots of other things to do. There are not only grandchildren, but, but there are other, you know, you can go do all manner of things. 
This kind of fruitfulness is supposed to be built into it, and it is because of their relationship as man and woman that allows this to happen, because they, they're complementary. Okay? Go ahead, Natalie. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, oh, my goodness. All right. How can, I always love to answer this question. So the question is about birth control, and I've got about five minutes to answer this question. Um, so I'm just going to close my catechism and be blunt and honest with you for a few seconds. And um, listen, if you disagree with me, I don't hate you. Um, I'm not mad at you because uh, basically um, what I'm about to give is, uh, is what I believe is a right opinion, um, and I will stick to it. Um, but I can't hold you to it, and I can't command you to believe it with me, uh, so you can just sort of say nana nana boo boo and walk off. Okay, fine. Um, I know I'm not gonna, I may, may not convince you. Obviously, in my family, the goalie has been pulled, okay? <laughs> Let's just say that straight up, like, you don't get seven children on birth control. It just doesn't happen, okay? And we have done that not only because we're convinced that, um, that children are a blessing from God, and we want to have them, uh, and we don't believe there's any reason why we shouldn't. Um, in fact, uh, I was telling this to somebody this morning. Um, I was talking to a local Baptist pastor, and he, his wife just had a baby, and he said, you know, Father Lee, um, you know, my wife and I were thinking about having another baby. We're just not sure we can handle it. I mean, we're just not sure we can handle the pressures or the, or the cost or whatever it was. I said, brother, like, you're a pastor. Like, if God brought 10 more people to your church, are you going to be worried about how you're going to feed them? And he was like, good point. <laughs> and because you don't, we just don't think about children as a blessing anymore. We think about them as a burden. We think about them as a burden on our relationship, a burden on our, on our joys, and a burden on all manner of things. Um, and that's not great, okay? That's not great. That's, that's actually a change in our, in our societal um, orientation towards children, which has been brought about technologically, actually. Um, so there's a, I'll just refer you to a couple good books. One, is Mary Aberstadt's uh, Adam and Eve After the Pill, which you should definitely read, right? If you're interested in this at all, you should read that book because uh, she just gives an accounting of what went on in our society because of the introduction of birth control on demand. Um, and I think it'll, it'll at least get you thinking about some things. The other thing that I'd actually encourage you to read is, uh, is, John, is Paul VI's uh, encyclical uh, Humanae Vitae, um, which is a pivotal document. And one of the things that Mary Eberstadt says is he was basically proven right, and no one has wrestled with this. Um, so I put that in front of you. Now, having said all that, um, I think that uh, in a church, and if, if you want my authority on this, I just turn you to the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, who says basically in a church that's already accepted this as a fact that people are going to do this, artificial contraception, it's really hard to hold a line that says, that marriage is only for a man and a woman. Because you've already accepted that the procreative good within marriage doesn't have to be there in order for it to be marriage. It's merely about mutual gratification at this point. Here's another thing. I wrote a paper in seminary about the Lambeth Conference of 1930 at which contraception was allowed by the conference for severe moral reasons, which means like uh, we, have, we have genetic problems and all of our kids are born with genetic issues. Okay. I'm going to set that aside for a moment. But what the Lambeth Conference essentially does is it severs the, the unitive good in marriage, right? Would you agree that sex and marriage brings unity between man and woman? Okay. Don't believe me? Go without it for four weeks, okay? It gets tense, you know? You start to see each other as enemies, you know? It's really a problem. Um, severs that unitive good from the procreative good, okay? So that you can just have the unitive good but not the procreative good. Okay. Here's the problem. We would never sever the unitive good from the procreative good. I mean, would we? I mean, we're ba we basically become horse breeders at this point. We become instruments of procreation only, right? So why is it that you can take one but not the other? And that's a really severe question that has to be answered. Here's what I'll also say. If you look deep into the research, we can see that... Um, that there's been lots, there are lots of problems, that, lots of relational problems that happen because of this, and Mary Eberstadt gets into these. But furthermore, um, there are ways, and, and the Roman Catholic Church has, has a guidance on this, um, and, uh, and we at times have followed this advice, that you can actually, by observing uh, the body's natural inclinations and timings, um, you can avoid pregnancy if you, for prudential reasons, decide to. 
um, discern to. Um, and, and they're very effective. And you might say, well, what's the difference between following a calendar and taking a pill every, every day? It's like, you might say virtually nothing. But if that's the case, then you'd do it. Like, you wouldn't worry about it. Because it's, it's, um, it, you're not introducing foreign bodies into your body. You're not trying to change your body chemistry. I mean, you have to understand, what, what the contraceptive pill essentially does is it keeps a woman's body so hopped up on progesterone that, it, that she thinks she's pregnant all the time. That's the reality of what's going on in the body there. Um, and over time, this is not good. I mean, cancer rates have gone up. All kinds of things have shot up because of this. Now, again, I just need to say, I'm not mad at you if you disagree with me. I'm just holding forth on what, what we've discerned. And my mind changed on this while I was in seminary, laboring over this paper and realizing, like, oh, crap, my arguments stink. And I realized, like, I have to change. And so Ellen and I were having a conversation. And she said, you know, just so you know, when we get married, I'm not going to, like, I want to be open to having a baby right away. And so I'm not going to go on the pill. I was like, oh, you can't go on the pill ever. Like, if you want to go on the pill, we can't get married. Like, <laughs> and so, so vast change took place in my life over this. And, but I will say just, oh, please hear me. Um, and hear my heart in this, which is that um, in a day and age which, which is just ruined by this culture of death, in which our society is so opposed to the gift of life that God works in marriage, we have, to all, we have to offer a serious alternative. Would you agree? Just with that base statement? We have to offer a serious and attractive alternative. And that doesn't mean have babies until you drop dead. It means something like maybe have three, okay? Maybe have four. Because you know this, our birth rate in America for the past several years has been 1.6. Do you understand what that means for our society? Well, okay, let me, just, let me just lay it out for you, okay? If you want somebody to care for you in your old age, seriously, and not be shut up in a lonely nursing home, left alone, start having babies, okay? Because the reality of it is, as these demographic shifts hit and they catch up with us, we're in trouble. We don't have anyone to take care of us because they're all out trying to grow food and earn a living, and they don't care about the elderly. And that, friends, is why a dropping birth rate is tied directly to euthanasia and moral acceptability of, of euthanasia. It's why it's absolutely tied to a spike in abortion rates. Obviously, abortion affects birth rates. I mean, we know this. It's kind of logical that it does. Um, so we're in trouble. We're in, we are in, I'll just say this, we are in full-blown demographic crisis in, in, in our country and in the West. Why? Because we have full-heartedly bought into this technology which makes possible living a life that is very self-centered. Um, and listen, we know that whole portions of our society will do this no matter what. Um, if you can't have children, you can't have babies, this is, why, this is why I say, then go adopt a baby. Go adopt children. Be a foster parent, right? The Christian home is meant to be a place of refuge for the solitary and for, for those who have no home. Okay? And Christian marriage, man and woman, and we'll say more about this as time goes on, are supposed to turn to each other in prayer and in love and turn outward in the world to care for it. Okay? Um, so I'm offering that to you. Uh, maybe it provides you with a vision. Um, if you want to have an argument with me, read Mary Eberstadt's book, and then we'll have an argument, and I think it'll be much more fruitful. Okay? Uh, thank you all.